Welcome to the preaching podcast of Life Point Church. We're so glad you've joined us here. If you're ever in the Baton Rouge area, please stop by. We'd love to meet you. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, please visit our website at golifepoint.com. Uh, so, we are into Revelation Revealed. This is part 14. Chapter 6, part 2, and hopefully all of chapter 7. So why don't we say a prayer and we'll jump right into it. Father, thank you so much for your goodness, your kindness, your mercy. Thank you for your word, for the book of Revelation. I pray, God, that we would glean some insight tonight, see some truth here that challenges us. In Jesus' name, everybody say amen. All right. Let me do a little review and introduction. The outline for the book of Revelation is found in Chapter 1, verse 19, John is told to write down things he had seen, which, as we've looked at, is the risen Jesus in all of his glory. And then he's also told to write down things which are, and we saw those things in chapters 2 and 3, the writings to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and all that they also represent with subsequent church ages. And then also things which will be which we saw beginning in chapter 4, where John was caught up into the heavenly realm, where the candlestick, the menorah now was, uh, signifying the church. So from chapter 4 on, we're dealing with things that take place after the rapture of the church. After the rapture of the church. The seals can't, the trumpets can't, the bowls of judgment can't be released until after the rapture of the church. And in chapter 5, we get this glimpse into heaven, and there was this scroll, the earthlies, representing all of the authority and power that the first Adam had lost, and it was sealed with seven seals, and nobody was worthy to open it except Jesus. John wept. One of the elders interrupted him and said, there is one worthy. The, the kinsman redeemer, the Lamb of God, who is worthy to redeem that which was lost. We looked at how that the kinsman redeemer of Ruth with Boaz, such a beautiful picture of this. The, the kinsman redeemer had to be, first of all, kin. Jesus is the last Adam. He's kin to the first Adam who lost it all. And then the kinsman redeemer has to be able to purchase, to redeem, to pay the price, to get back what was lost. And Jesus did that and more. And so the kinsman redeemer was worthy to take back all that Adam had lost. And he begins to open the seals on the scroll. In Revelation 6, we see the opening of the first seal, and that released the Antichrist. And we looked at how the Antichrist can't be revealed until the church is caught away. That's us. We're an occupying force filled with the Holy Ghost, walking in faith, walking in power, holding the Antichrist at bay. The first horseman of the apocalypse was released, that white horse, which was the man in white, the Antichrist. And he was riding in on the promise of peace. But that's not what followed him. What he brought was the three horsemen after him. The opening of the three next seals are... Uh, brought with that uh, war, famine, and death. The fifth seal was the cry of the martyrs. We looked at that. And then there was the sixth seal, which was epic. And, and referencing the day of the Lord, 
And we see that term throughout the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, it's mentioned almost a hundred times directly or indirectly. And there are uh, significant, uh, there's significant meaning in that terminology, the day of the Lord. It's referring to a day of judgment and a day of wrath. And that is going to take place after the rapture of the church. Now, this is worth mentioning. There are significant parallels between the Olivet Discourse of Jesus, which is found in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, and the opening of the seals that we see in Revelation 6. In other words, think about it. Jesus talks about false Christs. Here we see the Antichrist in the first seal. Jesus talks about war and rumors of war. And, and here we see in that second seal, war. Jesus mentions famine. That third seal, famine. We see earthquakes. We see martyrdom in the Olivet Discourse. And we also see that in those seals. Now, the seventh seal, because there are seven of them, but the seventh seal is not opened until chapter 8. But there's this break in the action, this shifting. Chuck Missler calls it a parenthesis. It's interesting because with the seals, there's a parenthesis between the sixth and the seventh seal. It's a whole chapter. And then with the trumpets, there's a parenthesis between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. Now, it's a little bit different in length. And then the same with the bowls or the vials. They're between the sixth and the seventh, there's this parenthesis. Uh, a little bit different in length as well, but still this little break in the action, this little shift that takes place before the loosing of the seventh seal, trumpet, or vial, or bowl. So let's look at the last six verses of chapter 6 because they're going to describe the opening of the sixth seal. And then, if you will, I want you to notice that these passages end with this giant question. So let's look at verses 12 through 17. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? Wayne, aren't you just excited about this? Uh-oh. <laughs> right. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, we spent a lot of time last time on the wrath of the Lamb. It's worth repeating just briefly here. It's amazing. We see the Lamb of God, this peaceful, gentle, meek, and mild Lamb of God. And here he is coming in wrath to where the mighty The weak, the strong, the mighty, the poor, the slave, the free are running and saying to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. It's amazing. And then verse 17, here's the question. 
for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Say that word, who. Who is able to stand? That's the question. Who can stand up under the wrath of the Lamb? Well, the answer to this question is found in chapter 7. Who is able to stand? A hundred and forty-four thousand from the twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve thousand from each of the twelve tribes. They will be the ones that will be able to stand. So let's dive into this. And you know the Jehovah's Witnesses, God bless their hearts, they used to say that the 144,000, I guess maybe they still do, it it was them. They're like, we're we're the 144,000. You want to know who the 144,000 are? We're the ones. That's what they're knocking on your door to tell you and to give you some, some paperwork on it. But then, if you go to one of their conventions, they'll have two or 300,000 people at one of their conventions. So I'm like, well, man, like some of y'all are in, but I'm just telling you, some of y'all are out, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's not true. They're off. They're off. Everybody say off. I don't want to be judgmental, but I'm just telling you, but they're off. This gets into it. Let's dive, let's dive, uh, let's dive into Revelation 7. So now we're at verses 1 through 3. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. We need one of those angels to go out there in the, in the Atlantic right now and take care of that old Florence, furious Florence out there in Jesus' name. Pray that that thing would decrease and decrease and decrease. All those storms would come to nothing. I talked to Wesley yesterday. I said, won't you come, like, ride out the storms up here in Louisiana? He's like, no, we're going to ride it out down here. I'm like, whatever, man. You know, like, whatever. We could be praying for you. But, but here are angels, and, and it says that, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. The phrase, okay, that's mentioned in this verse, the four corners of the earth, is the ancient equivalent to the idea of the four points on a compass. The four points on a compass. The idea is there are four angels, according to the Scripture, there are four angels who seem to be in charge of four different quadrants of the earth. Four angels who affect the entirety of the earth. We saw angels in Genesis, all over Genesis. We see angels in Revelation, all over Revelation. And I'm telling you, they're in between Genesis and Revelation. They're here with us tonight. Angels are part of God's plan. They're fellow servants. They're with us. So you have angels in between. I believe they're here and now. Let's do a little review, a little talk about angels, because I want to deal with these four angels and then that fifth angel that comes into play. There's this hierarchy in the heavenly realm. 
we know that there are three archangels, Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. Michael is the warring angel. We see this in different places in Scripture. Gabriel is the speaking angel. And then there is Lucifer, who seemed to be the anointed cherub who was in charge of worship. He was musical, artistic. And then Lucifer fell and became the devil. He became the Satan, the devil. And it seems to me, just looking at it on the surface, that he copied the way heaven works. In other words, just like God has a hierarchy, he has a hierarchy. He has an authority system. Matthew 12, notice this. There's this story in Matthew 12, starting with verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, meaning Jesus, blind and mute. And he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub. Notice, hierarchy, the ruler of the demons. But when Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan, who they were referring to as Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? There's a lot in that. We're not going to deal with it. But notice, therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come to you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless the first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. All kind of richness here. This blind mute person was blind and mute in this case because of a demonic spirit referred to as a strong man. Jesus came and plundered by the Spirit of God the strong man's house, which resulted in this man's deliverance. But notice the terminology there. You see a hint of the hierarchy. Do you not? The ruler of the demons. That's not the only place we see it. In Mark chapter 5, we see where the man was, who was possessed with 6,000 demons, 6 to 12, some, somewhere in there, chases down Jesus, falls at his feet, and worships him. And Jesus says, who are you? And he says, we are legion. Remember that? For we are many. That's where we get the idea of six to 12,000 demons. And Jesus casts out the demons... But the 6,000 demons were represented by a spokesperson or a spokesdemon, a personality, a spokesdemon that rose up and said, we are many. Call us legion. We're better together, right? (laughs) We are many. But you had, again, an allusion here to a hierarchy. And then in Ephesians 6... 10 through 12, really to cap it off, kind of seal the deal, no pun intended. 
verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers. Notice this. Principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. I think this is amazing. There seems to be quadrants of the earth, territories that spiritual beings are assigned to in order to exert influence in these realms. There is a network over which principalities, powers, I believe this is a hierarchy, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places, all governed under Satan's auspices. We see where this is all meted out, these territories. And then finally, in the book of Daniel, we see where Daniel had prayed a prayer, asked God for revelation concerning the book of Jeremiah that he was studying, and the Lord immediately dispatched Gabriel with the answer. But the prince of Persia, which is referring to a spiritual entity who was over this political realm, this kingdom of man, there was a demonic spirit, uh, a, a spiritual entity on the dark side that governed that and resisted Gabriel from getting to Daniel immediately to the point that Gabriel called for Michael to come in with reinforcements to fight. And, and Gabriel says this, we had to fight and it took us 21 days to get to you with the answer. This dual kingdom that's going on. I'm telling you, there's more to this world than what you see with your natural eyes. When you hear that, that something's going on in Russia, or you hear that something's going on in Iraq or Iran or Syria, it's not just the politics on the earth. There's movement in the heavenlies. And I believe the church, as we've already looked at, has a bearing on keeping at bay. That's why your prayers are important. Hey, Monday night prayer was powerful in this house at our first Monday in communion, first Monday prayer in communion. It was powerful. And I think our prayers are way more powerful than, than we think they are. I keep saying that, but one day it's going to get through our heads. Your prayers are powerful. Don't stop praying those prayers. Daniel kept opening that window to the east and praying towards what he planned to go back to one day, that that temple, and he would open and pray and bless the name of the Lord every day. And I believe that was adding strength and reinforcements to Gabriel getting to Daniel with the answer to his prayers. So again, we see this hierarchy. Now back in Revelation 7, these four angels were holding, notice this, (coughs) holding back the four winds of the earth. The four winds of the earth. These winds were the destructive force of God's judgment. And we see that back in the Old Testament, that kind of terminology. It's an idiom in, in Hebrew. Hosea thirteen fifteen gives us an example. Though he is fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come from the wilderness. Then his spring will become dry and his fountain shall dry up. Guzik says the four winds of the earth may refer back to the four horsemen of Revelation 6, 1 through 8. 
after the pattern of Zechariah 6, 1 through 8, because in that passage, four chariots with horses of the same colors of Revelation 6, 1 go out into the earth, and they are called the four spirits of heaven. The Hebrew is ruah. So it could be that. But Revelation 7, 2, notice this. Revelation 7, 2 says, Another angel had a seal, and he sealed the people of God. So I want to talk about that. Who can stand under the wrath of the Lamb? 144,000 who are sealed. And so here you have another angel. This angel has a seal to seal the people of God. In the ancient world of John's day, seals were a thing. A king or a property owner could use a seal to show ownership or authenticity. In our day, when I think of a seal, you know, you have like seals on certificates that authenticate show that they're real, this is a real deal, certificate, diploma, uh, authorization. My mother-in-law, who just moved here, by the way, back here, Brenda Gale, Brenda is a notary, and Brenda has a seal from the parish where she was authorized to notarize. Uh, Anthony is a notary. As a matter of fact, he just notarized our bill of sale that shows that we own a dorm in Tioga on the campgrounds. Now, that authenticates, that verifies it's genuine, it's authentic. They signed, the people we bought it from, and had a signature notarized. We signed, had witnesses, had it notarized. There was a seal that made it official, protects us from judgments, liens, legal impairments, and... Uh, these were people who were to be sealed for protection. Verse 3 says, Do not harm the earth to see the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. These servants of God were to receive this protective seal that Revelation 14, as we'll get to, says that the, the name of God somehow was contained in that seal. Now, in Ezekiel 9, 4, there's a similar mention of a protective seal given to the righteous before Jerusalem who were being judged. Now, the ones who were receiving the seal in Revelation are called the servants of God. You've already seen angels who are on assignment. These servants of God were on assignment as well. They had a mission. They had a mandate. They, they were sealed for a specific, unique, and holy purpose. And the, the general idea of being sealed however, is not uh, restricted to these 144,000. As I said, we've already seen this in Ezekiel before. But we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, according to 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22 and Ephesians 1, 13. Uh, Ephesians 1, 13 says that having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We're sealed with this Spirit that is the earnest of our inheritance. In other words, we have tasted a, a, a piece of what is to come in redemption. We've been filled with the Spirit. We've been able to partake of the divine nature. But, folks, this is not all there is to our redemption. There's another day coming. There is the rapture that's coming. There's a redeemed body that's coming. 
will be like his glorified body. So things will change. But we've received the earnest of that. The earnest is, is not necessarily a down payment, Phyllis, as we learned in real estate. But earnest is earnest money. Are you with me? Earnest money is not uh, the same as a down payment. Earnest money is saying, here's this money, and I'm letting you know I'm serious, I'm dedicated, I'm willing, and I am able to perform the terms of this contract. Now, God has poured out His Spirit on us, and that Spirit, the fact that we can be filled with the Spirit speaking with other tongues, is proof that He is earnest, that He is willing, that He is able to perform the terms of the covenant, the promises that He has made to us, that He has sworn to us to fulfill. In other words, when He says that you'll, I'll give you eternal life, spirit, soul, and body, we haven't experienced that yet, but what He's saying is, I can come through. Just like you spoke in tongues, that same spirit will lift your mortal body and change your mortal body in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Even if you die and your body disintegrates and turns into an apple tree and somebody else eats the apples and those cells and atoms get distributed from here to yon, across the four corners of the earth. He's saying it doesn't matter because you will, you have, you have sown the mortal body in the waters of baptism. I will raise it one day like my glorified body. You will have the same thing. And he swears to us that is possible. Are you with me? That is doable. It's the sealing. He's sealing that. Okay, we see that with, I'm having a hard time saying seal. Seal. Uh, now, <clears throat> these are Jews. I don't think you could spiritualize this and say, spiritual Jews, uh, this is, there's no other way to look at it. These are Jews who come to faith. The 12 tribes of Israel. By the way, people say there's 10 lost tribes. That's a myth. There's not 10 lost tribes. Prince Charles and all those conspiracy theories about the 10 tribes, etc. Don't listen to all that. There are 12 tribes. Peter and James both mentioned the 12 tribes of Israel at the time they were alive. And people that say that the ten tribes were lost say they were lost prior to 2,000 years ago. So James and Peter didn't realize they were lost because they weren't lost. They were never lost. There's 12 tribes of Israel. So let's, let's take a look at this. Uh, these are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, 144,000. And they are Jews who come to faith. They are saved during the Great Tribulation. During the Great Tribulation, we see this. The text says that exactly. It, it's similar. Some have said, well, how are they saved? 
uh, because the Holy Spirit has left the earth. No, the Holy Spirit didn't leave the earth. The church left the earth. The Spirit of God is still moving on the earth. And, and this has to be saved, salvation, in the same way that we receive salvation, through the shed blood of Jesus. It's not like they're Jews and they're going to go build a temple and offer sacrifices and that's going to save them. The sacrifice has been made. So they're looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of their faith as well. Uh, and we'll see that again in, in the end of this chapter. So look at verses 4 through 8. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Now, God is getting very specific with the names, very specific with the numbers. Repetitive here as to drive the point home. 12,000 from these 12 tribes. Now, Dan, the tribe of Dan... Sorry, Mr. Dan. The tribe of Dan is missing from this list. The tribe of Dan is missing from this list. Not exactly sure. I do know that when Jacob prophesied about Dan in Genesis 49, he said that Dan would be a serpent who would strike. And so perhaps he's left out and exposed to the wrath of God here. But in Ezekiel 48.1, he's mentioned in the 12 tribes who have an allotment in the millennial reign of Christ. We'll get into that. So, uh, not exactly sure. But, and you could dive into who's in there, who's not. The tribe of Joseph. You have Manasseh. Ephraim would be the other one from that offspring there with Joseph. But we could dive into that. But let's move on. God seals them. And listen, they become evangelists for Jesus. In other words, you have 144,000 Jews during the Great Tribulation. Think about this. Think about it. Think about it. The Antichrist has set up shop. Remember, he's the first one released. He set up shop. And, and he confuses the nation of Israel. They see him as their Messiah. But 144,000 have a revelation that he's fake. And the, the real Jesus is the one they missed. Now, there's going to be a mass revelation a little bit later, as we'll see. But 144,000 come to realize there's the real Jesus. They get saved, and they become flaming evangelists and lead a worldwide revival. If you study what we're about to read, there are some scholars that say there are more saved in the great, tribu great uh, tribulation, then there are people saved in the rest of the history of mankind. Now, some of us have always thought, well, I missed the rapture, I'm lost. And that may be true. But think about it. There's 7 billion people, 7.6 billion, according to some estimates, on the earth right now. There's more people alive today than there's ever been. And so what would happen if 2 billion or 3 billion or 4 billion turned to the Lord in one mass revival led by 144,000? 
radical Messianic Jews. It could be amazing. Now, look with me. Are you with me? I'm coming down. My, my landing gear is out. We're coming down. These are difficult scriptures, y'all. We got to do something with them. I don't want your eyes to glaze over, but this is in your Bible. What do we do with this? This is what we're doing with it. Look at verses 9 and 10. After these things, I looked, and behold, listen, after these things, these 144,000 Jews who are sealed, after these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Again, salvation, even in this time, is because of the Lamb, to the glory of the Lamb, because of the one on the throne and the blood of the Lamb. And then look at the next verses, verse 11 through 17. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. So remember, the elders representing all the saved of both testaments, the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? It's like a test. The elder looks to John and gives him a test. He's seeing into the future. He says, you tell me, John, who are these in white robes and from whence did they come? And I said to him, sir, you know, he passed, right? He's like, I passed, you tell me. So he said to him, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. These are they who come out of the great tribulation. Those who were saved under the ministry, you could say, of the 144,000 from the tribes who were sealed with the protection of the Lord, so they could go out and evangelize. And so you've got people who suffered, even martyrdom, and they came out of great tribulation. Stand with me right now. They came out of great tribulation. I told you before, I'm on the first train out, and I believe the first train out is the rapture, okay? This train's bound for glory. I'm going to get on that train. I got my ticket. I done signed up. If you miss it, you know, like, uh, still believe in Jesus. Uh, pray to God for help, you know. Lean on Him. Get in the Word, whatever. But I want to be on the first train out of here. 
But according to this, before the seventh seal is unleashed, there's going to be a revival. And again, think of the disappointment in the devil. His master plan, the Antichrist, can't even be released until the Lamb undoes the seal. And then he releases hell in all its fury. Famine, war, death. It's brutal. Brutal. And in the middle of it, 144,000 Jews that the devil thought, I got them as well. I blinded them. I hindered them. They killed their Messiah. 144,000 come to faith and become evangelists with the Antichrist still around and people still turn to Jesus. I'm telling you, our God is in control. Our God is going to win this. It's not like He wins some and loses some. He wins it all and He wins big. Our God is a winner. And if you want to be on the winning side, put your trust in Him. Cast your cares upon Him now because He cares for you. He can handle whatever you're facing and whatever you're going through. Amen. Can you lift your hands to Him right now? Father, we thank You for Your goodness and Your mercy and Your kindness. It's an honor and a privilege to worship You and to give You praise, Lord. I thank You, Lord, for this story of 144,000 sealed God. 144,000 with an assignment to go out and reach a lost and dying world in some of the worst conditions. But God, you anoint and you empower. If you'll do it then, you'll do it now. God, we're a church that is bigger and, and more powerful than we think because you go with us, your holy angels go with us. God, we could stand in the evil day, having done all to stand. You said, stand, therefore. And, and, and Father, we walk by faith and not by sight. And our faith cannot be shaken, Lord. We will, we will hold on to it. We will fight for it. We will not lose it. When you come back to the earth, you'll find that faith in us. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were blessed by the preaching of God's Word. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, or if you plan to attend one of our services, please visit our website at golifepoint.com.